Thank you, Chris, for that introduction. Yeah, God has uh, been messing with me a little bit over the last last few uh, few hours, last couple of days, and that's a good thing. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, introducing some some concepts there with, all right, maybe this should be two sermons, and we had some desperate prayer, but thanks be the Lord for um, bringing us here, and guys, it is such a privilege uh, to be up here before you guys and to be entrusted with bringing God's word. Um, It is a fearful and wonderful thing, and so I hope you guys just join in with me today as we dig in to Genesis. Uh, If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 37 verses 1 through 11 is going to be our text for the day. We're continuing in our origin series by looking at the life of Joseph, and we're also going to be looking at the life of Joseph next week as well. It's It's a huge story. So if you guys open up there, I will read for us Genesis chapter 37 verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given this to us to study, to know, to know who you are, Lord, to know your designs, your plans, your purposes. Lord, today, as we hear your word, Lord, today, as I preach your word, I pray that you you would use me, that your word would go forth, that your people would hear, Lord, that you would use this word to transform the lives of the believers here, those listening online, and that your good purposes would be made evident. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I read today's passage, which is 11 verses out of Genesis 37, but the life and story of Joseph is a lot bigger than that in in the book of Genesis. In fact, it takes up nearly the last third of the book of Genesis. From where we read today in Genesis 37, 
all the way to Genesis 50, which is the very end of Genesis. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, we're going to have a little bit of a refresh here, a little story time, if you will. Uh, And I'm going to take a few minutes to give kind of a summary of part of the narrative of Joseph's incredible life. So we just saw 17-year-old Joseph telling his dreams to his brothers, and they hated him. In fact, his brothers hated him so much, they actually planned to kill him. And yet Reuben, the oldest brother, intervened and convinced his brothers to simply just put Joseph in a pit. And Reuben had plans to come back later and rescue him. But another of his brothers, Judah, actually got a bright idea and said, well, why kill him when we can sell him? That way we aren't killing him because he's our own flesh. So they ended up selling him for 20 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And Joseph ends up being sold to a man through a chain of events, sold to a man named Potiphar, who's the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's household. He's an officer there in Egypt. And in that household, Joseph serves faithfully, faithfully excuse me, and the blessing of the Lord is on him. And he did so, and, and he actually found favor with Potiphar to the point where he was made an overseer in Potiphar's house. Now, Joseph was a pretty good-looking young man at that time, and Potiphar's wife noticed this, and she actually wanted to sleep with Joseph. And day after day, she asked Joseph to lie with her, and Joseph refused because he didn't want to sin against Potiphar, and he didn't want to sin against God. In fact, it got so bad that he literally had to flee the household, leaving his garment behind. And in doing so, Potiphar's wife became a woman scorned. So she lied and accused Joseph of trying to rape her. And so Potiphar, being the captain of the guard, decided to have Joseph thrown in prison, in Pharaoh's prison. But once again, the Lord gives Joseph favor, where the keeper of the prison ends up putting Joseph in charge of all the prisoners, and again, the Lord makes Joseph succeed in all that he does. Now, some time passes in jail, and these two other characters enter who... Uh, are the king's cupbearer and the king's baker who end up in prison with him. And they both have dreams that they're trying to figure out. And Joseph knows something about interpreting dreams. And so he says, I'll give you an interpretation. But he attributes all the glory to God in doing so. And he interprets it for both of them. For their cupbearer, he says, well, this dream means that you're going to serve Pharaoh again in three days. And for the baker, he says, your dream means that you are going to be executed in three days. And the only thing that Joseph requests is that the cupbearer remember him when he is freed in three days. But unfortunately, the cupbearer does not remember him. And so two more years pass with Joseph in prison. And this time, Pharaoh is the one having troubling dreams. And the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph, and Joseph is called up before the king. And the two dreams that Pharaoh has are this. We have seven healthy cows that are followed by seven sick cows that swallow up the healthy cows. And again, the second dream was seven healthy ears of corn followed by seven blighted ears of corn that swallow up the good. And Joseph, again, giving all credit to God, gives an interpretation and reveals to Pharaoh that those two dreams have one meaning. And that means that seven good years are coming to the land followed by seven years of famine, unlike the land has ever seen before. But Joseph does something more here. He doesn't just give the interpretation of the dreams. 
he tells Pharaoh exactly what he should do in order to prepare for those seven years of famine by using the seven years of good to store up. And so Pharaoh sees the wisdom and discernment and sees the spirit of God in Joseph and puts Joseph in charge. He makes him the number two ruler in all of the land of Egypt. And at this point, Joseph is 30 years old now. He's given an Egyptian name, an Egyptian wife, and he sets about preparing during those seven plentiful years. Now, sometime during those seven years, he also has two sons. And interestingly, with the Egyptian name that he's given, an Egyptian wife that he has, he gives these two sons Hebrew names, Manasseh and Ephraim. Then we see the famine comes to the land. And at this point, he's 37 years old, Egypt is prepared, and they have grain to sell to the land. And sometime in those first couple years of the famine, Jacob, who is Joseph's father, learns that there is grain for sale in Egypt. And he sends 10 of his sons to go and buy the grain. But he doesn't send Benjamin. He holds his youngest and new favorite uh, son back. And here's where we see the first fulfillment of those original dreams that we read about in chapter 37. You see, Joseph is in control of selling the grain. And his brothers don't recognize him, but they come before Joseph and bow down before him, asking for grain to buy. Joseph sells them the grain, and then there's a bit of literal back and forth for a couple of years between Canaan and Egypt, and eventually events come to a head where Joseph has his brothers before him, and he sees the willingness of one of his brothers to give himself up in exchange for the life of Benjamin, their youngest brother. Now, Joseph is overwhelmed with emotion at this point. And here, at 39 years old, some 22 years after he is first sold into slavery by his brothers, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And one of the first things out of his mouth is this. In Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was, that it was, not, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And so Joseph sends his brothers back to their father Jacob to let them know to let Jacob know that he is alive. And Jacob takes the whole family, moves them back down to Egypt where they're provided for for the remaining five years of the famine. They eventually settle there in Egypt. And we see Jacob lives out the rest of his life in Egypt. At the end of his life, he pronounces some blessings on his, his sons, which we'll get to a little bit more next week. And he passes away in Egypt. And so too we see that Joseph lives out the rest of his days in Egypt and passes away, and we come to the end of Genesis. Now, thank you for indulging me for a moment to tell that whole story because I think it is so important to set the context of what we're going to be looking at today. And the question is this. How does this story of Joseph fit into the broader narrative of Genesis? And I want us to remember uh, the context here. 
who is the author that's writing this? Well, it's Moses. Moses is the author of Genesis and, and actually the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so Moses is writing to the people of Israel to lay the foundations of what God is doing in history. He's answering questions for them and, and also questions for us today, like how and why was Israel chosen as the people of God? Or how and why did they come to possess this land of Canaan that they're living in? It also lays the foundations for things such as the giving of God's law to people. We see this in Exodus and, and, and on, where, where for the purpose of seeing God's intention for how people are supposed to live and interact with God, the vertical dimension of their relationship, and how people are supposed to interact with each other, that horizontal dimension. So we see here that understanding the purposes, God's purposes in history and, and how he's using people and circumstances to accomplish those purposes is, is largely what's going on here, especially in Genesis. Now I want to take a minute and clarify a little bit about what I mean of God's purposes because we're throwing around that term, but I think it's helpful to understand that essentially purposes here is, is the end or aim that God is setting forth and decreeing. It's his objective, his goal, his intention or design. And what this really boils down to is, is God's sovereignty and God's purposes because God is going to accomplish whatever he sets his aim towards, whatever he sets his end towards. And so how does Joseph then fit into these purposes? Well, whether you know it or not, we've been seeing God establish his purposes all the way through Genesis, laying the foundations bit by bit. And we're going to dig into the specifics a little bit more later, both this week and next week. But in general, I think we see God's purposes through the covenants that he's laying, whether it's that original covenant of creation with Adam or the covenant of Noah where he promises not to flood the earth and there is the war bow pointing towards heaven, threatening penalty towards, hey, God says, I'm not going to do this lest I be killed, which God cannot be killed. <laughs> the purposes and covenants through Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and so on. At its heart, the story of Joseph is about how God is accomplishing his purposes through Joseph's life where this atrocious sin sets a man on a 22-year journey to ultimately preserve life and rescue God's people. Sin cannot defeat God's purposes. And so we see that is specifically true in the life of Joseph and his brothers, and I hope today that we'll see that that's more broadly true for us today. Now, we're going to take a look at how God's purposes are triumphant over sin and our circumstances uh, about looking at other sins against us and how those cannot defeat God's purposes. And specifically, I hope that we are encouraged today that as we study Genesis, I hope you see that sin cannot defeat God's purposes in the life of Joseph and his brothers and that it cannot defeat God's purposes in your own life. Now, this is echoed perfectly, I think, in Isaiah 46.10, where God says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. 
So let's get in today, and we're going to take a look at the sin and circumstances and how those sins and circumstances against you cannot defeat God's purposes. And so let's specifically look at the sins against Joseph. We're going to take a look at that. This is kind of this week's past through the life of Joseph. We're going to look at Joseph through the most traditional lens, and that's by exploring it from his perspective, from his life. Next week, we'll have a little bit more non-traditional look, but for this week, let's start with Joseph. And here we see this grave sin committed against Joseph by his very brothers. They hated him so deeply that they wanted to murder him. Genesis 37, verses 18 through 20 says, They conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Now we know and we heard that slightly cooler heads prevailed, and instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. But... It should be noted that according to God's law that's going to come a little bit later in Exodus, just like murder, the seriousness of selling someone into slavery is punishable by death. Exodus 21 verse 16 puts it this way. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So human trafficking, selling someone into slavery, is punishable by death. And we see here Joseph is experiencing one of the gravest sins that can be perpetrated against someone. A sin that's born out of envy and arrogance and hatred. And if that weren't enough, later in Joseph's life, he has this second sin against him by Potiphar's wife, who bears false witness against him and has him sent to jail. Now again, according to God's law, revealed later in the Pentateuch, we see that this sin is punishable by the false accuser receiving whatever punishment would have given, been given to the one committing the crime. Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 through 19, puts it this way. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So what's Joseph being accused of here? Well, it's attempted rape, and according to God's law, Rape is punishable by death, Deuteronomy 22, verse 25, which speaks to the seriousness of this accusation. So this sin against Joseph is a sin with deadly consequences. It's a sin that's born out of sight, a sin that says, you refuse to give me what I want, so I'm going to hurt you. And yet Joseph flees temptation. He does exactly what Paul in the New Testament and the law of the Old Testament calls him to do. And yet, he's punished for doing the very right thing. How many of you have ever been punished for doing the right thing? Welcome to the biblical club. (laughs) So Joseph here experiences two of the most heinous sins against him a person can experience in life. Sold into slavery, falsely accused of attempted rape. And these sins set him on a course of slavery, servitude, and imprisonment lasting 13 years. He's a man whose circumstances are completely beyond his control. Now what on earth do you think Joseph might have been thinking during these 13 years? Can you imagine the questioning that might have gone through his mind? Why God? Why have you allowed me to be sold into this foreign land? Why have you allowed me to be cut off from my people? 
Why am I here, God, in, in this place? Am I not one of your people? Why have you allowed me to be imprisoned falsely? Or maybe he's even asking, you know, God, it seems wherever I go, my, my work is blessed. Why, do, why is my work blessed in this, the land of my affliction? What's going on here? I have to imagine these kind of thoughts cross Joseph's mind. And yet, the narrative of Genesis doesn't mention these kind of thoughts even once. Instead, we see that Joseph works faithfully for his captors regardless of his circumstance. And even in so doing, he gives the credit to God whenever given the chance. You see, these sins against Joseph are the very actions that put Joseph in the center of God's purposes. He is there for such a time as this to be God's vessel to accomplish his purpose of saving Joseph's family so that God's chosen people will not die out. So let's explore that purpose because there's there's a little bit more that's going on here in terms of purposes that are being fulfilled. You know, it's God that gives and fulfills the dreams in this story. God who is orchestrating all of it so that even these terrible sins against Joseph and the suffering and famine that are brought upon the land are purposed by God to bring about a greater plan. And what plans are those? Well, remember, we mentioned the covenant. So let's, let's take a look at the covenants with Abraham in chapter 12 and chapter 15. God's promise to Abraham in chapter 12 was this, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then again, God's promise in chapter 15, verse 5, says, And he brought him, that's Abraham, outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Well, how will this great promise of, of God to Abraham come to fruition if his descendants are in danger of starving to death in a famine? Joseph and the sins against him are central to the continuation of that plan. It's those very sins and circumstances, the selling into slavery in Egypt, which leads to living in Egypt, the false accusation, which leads to Pharaoh's prison. It's those very sins and circumstances which leads Joseph to the very position that God intends for him. This is the position where through Joseph, God brings it about that many people are kept alive. Indeed, Egypt, Canaan, the known world is fed during this famine and are preserved by the foresight, wisdom, and preparation given to this man who was once a slave and prisoner. But more than preserving life in general, specifically, Joseph is placed in the very position God intends so that he might save his own family. The family whose 12 brothers become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that the promises of God given to Abraham in chapter 12 and chapter 15 might be fulfilled by the descendants of Abraham and they might be as numerous as the stars. God is accomplishing his purposes here. But there's something even more specific here. And I want to highlight this so that we see just how precise God can be with his word. 
You see, part of the promise to Abraham in chapter 15 is a very difficult yet specific promise of hardship in a foreign land. Genesis chapter 15 verses 13 and 14 say this, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. God promises his offspring that they will be servants and that they will be afflicted in a foreign land for 400 years. How is this going to come about where they're already nicely settled in Canaan? Well, the answer is, again, through Joseph, through the sins of others and the circumstances arising that bring about God's very purposes. They were the very means God used to bring his people to a foreign land for 400 years where he would grow them and preserve them so that they might become a great nation and fulfill that blessing. Brothers and sisters, other sins against you can't defeat God's purposes. Circumstances against you cannot defeat God's purposes. And now I want to take a bit of time for some application here where maybe you're like Joseph today and you're utterly confused at your circumstances or as John Piper puts at it puts it you're being hated by family being thrown in a pit being sold into slavery being accused of what you did not do being thrown into prison being forgotten by those who you blessed all the while keeping your integrity and trying to serve God and you're wondering what is God's purpose in all of this Maybe your circumstances are like that as well, and you're asking, what's what's God doing here? And the question is, where are you in that timeline? Where are you in that 22-year journey that Joseph was on? Maybe, Maybe you're at the end of it, and you're about to find out exactly what God's purposes are all about in your life. Why why is he allowing you to go through this? Maybe you're in the middle of it. You're in year nine. You're thrown in prison unjustly, and You've got 13 more years to go before God shows you the reason of why. Shows you his purposes for this. Or maybe for some of us, maybe that purpose of God and the sins against you, the circumstances around you, are only going to become clear once we reach heaven. But I want to encourage you to remember this, that it's God who gives and fulfills the dreams in this story. It's God who is orchestrating every part of this. And thinking about how to apply this a little further, I'd like to speak to two specific segments of people here today. And if you don't immediately identify with one of these segments, that's, that's okay. I'd encourage you to listen intently anyway because I believe there are applications in here that apply to us all. That first camp that I want to speak to is that which I'll call triumphalism. Now, you may hear that word and have no idea what I mean. And that's okay, so let's give it some definition here. This, This first segment of people I want to address here today are those who, when something is going wrong in life, you say, something must be wrong with me spiritually speaking. You think thoughts like, if only I had enough faith, God would heal me. God would help me. God would save them. 
Or maybe you think, man, the this, this struggle and suffering in my life is evidence of sin. Maybe that sin is hindering my prayers. Or even if those thoughts aren't conscious, maybe they're subconscious. And you're living like they're true. Like you're the reason that you're experiencing difficult circumstances. Or you're the reason that you're experiencing suffering. Or maybe you're someone who projects those kinds of thoughts onto others. Believing that they're the cause for their suffering and circumstances. Now, let me be clear here. Our own sin can lead to our own suffering, and our sins can hinder our prayers. But what I'm addressing here today with triumphalism is the idea that our interactions with God should function like a vending machine. As long as I feed that machine the right inputs of faith and hit the right buttons of not sinning and living rightly, then it's going to give me blessings and health and triumph over sin and right relationship with others. You see, triumphalism focuses on the self. It's an inward focus for health and life and prosperity of ourselves and those we love. But it's a subtle twisting of God's good promises that ties how good or bad our circumstances are with our, directly back to our faith or lack thereof. Ties it to the sins of the believer. And yet, Scripture is clear that that is not true. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 45, For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Or in Psalm 73, we see the psalmist say, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, and they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Evil people can prosper. Does that mean they're doing good? Does that mean they're not sinning? No. Righteous people, good people can suffer. Does that mean they're outside of the will of God? No. Christian, if you are consciously or subconsciously living out this triumphalistic lie, let today's passage disabuse you of that notion. Your suffering, your trials, your circumstances do not mean that you are outside of God's will. We have a man here in Joseph who lives a life of outstanding moral character, and yet the tragic sins of others send him to a land of affliction and suffering that lasts for years. That's all for the purpose of accomplishing God's purposes. Our passage speaks to the expectation that we should have of difficulty and suffering in this life. But it also gives that suffering a meaning. Because we can have confidence. We can have confidence that our God is in total and complete control. And it is through that very suffering that we may not understand today, that we may not understand tomorrow, that we may not even understand until we're in heaven, but it is in and through that very suffering that we see that God is accomplishing his purposes. Now the second group of people I want to address today is what I'm going to label victimhood culture or unforgiveness. And I think this is a largely secular movement that has been seeping into the church. 
and it's connected to a particular philosophy or worldview that has become quite popular today. And this worldview sees the world as oppressors and the oppressed, and that there are systems of oppression throughout all of it. And it categorizes people by their identity or multiple various identities, such as race, gender, class, even religion. And the overlap of these identities equals someone's level of privilege or marginalization in society. And what we're seeing in this worldview is that the most marginalized or biggest victims are the ones that can claim moral superiority by their victim status. It's in this worldview that theirs are the voices that we're supposed to listen to and we're supposed to heed because their voices carry more weight due to their authority, due to their identity equaling their level of marginalization that they've experienced, regardless of the actual experience of that individual. Now, one way in which this becomes problematic is that it actually incentivizes people to claim the most marginalized status, because in claiming that more marginalized status, their voices are given a greater weight and greater moral superiority. In other words, there's more power there. There's social advantage there. And people want that. So people think about that. How am I being victimized? And as people dwell there in their thoughts, they become like that. Proverbs 23, 7, For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. And so victimhood culture is born, where people seek out and search to identify where and how others have wronged them to dwell there in self-pity and in self-righteousness, feeling good about themselves because they know they've been wronged or are continuing to be wronged, and they can smugly sit in judgment over those who have given even the slightest perceived offense, whether intended or not. Now, victimhood culture does not know forgiveness. It refuses to turn the other cheek. Instead of pointing to Christ, it points to self. It's the opposite of humble. Rather, it's proud. It's a high sensitivity to slight and even unintentional and perceived slights. But believer, I hope you can see in our passage here today that God has a bigger picture. Joseph did not see himself as a victim. But rather, he proclaimed to his brothers who were terrified that Joseph was going to exact revenge on them do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. There's even more evidence here. Do you remember what Joseph named his children? He gave them Hebrew names. It was Manasseh and Ephraim. And do you know what Manasseh means? It means literally that God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. Joseph's hardship was being betrayed by his family members. Joseph's hardship was being sold into slavery, being cut off from his family, cut off from his people group, everyone he, he has known, enslaved, falsely accused, imprisoned. And if anyone has a right to be a victim, it was Joseph. And yet, the very name he gives his son declares forgiveness. It says, I choose not to define myself by the difficulties I faced or the sins against me. 
or as a preacher named Vadi Bakum so eloquently puts it in a modern translation, Manasseh means I've let that stuff go. Now I want to take care here because I recognize that there are real people here today who have suffered real hurt at the hands of others. And a fully orbed view of Scripture calls for justice and calls for reconciliation. But brothers and sisters, we are not the arbiters of that justice. True justice and reconciliation can only be found in Christ and in resting in his work on the cross. You may have been victimized, but believer, you are not a victim. Because a victim is one whose identity is based on being oppressed and mistreated. And you have a new identity in Christ. Christian, you are not the victim because there is one who is the victor. He has overcome sin, Satan, and death, and he has purchased you at a price. Ransoming you out of the very pit of hell, Jesus died on a cross and rose victorious on the third day so that his beloved and chosen people might feast with him and worship him as he reigns victorious over the new heavens and new earth. Brothers and sisters, do not buy into the lie of triumphalism where your identity and circumstances rest in your own performance. Do not buy into the lie of victimhood culture where others must be sacrificed on the altar of unforgiveness in order to give yourself credit and glory. Rather, live your life as a living sacrifice so that your life might give glory to God, to the one who was unjustly sacrificed for your sins. As a believer in Christ, your identity is not found in the circumstances surrounding you or how marginalized you are, but rather your identity is found in Christ alone, for you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Our calling of believers is not that of unforgiveness, but it's to be ministers of reconciliation. Other sins against you don't define you, because other sins against you cannot defeat God's purposes. I hope you take heart today. I hope you see that God's purposes will triumph over other sins against you. I hope you see that God's purposes will triumph over the circumstances of your life. When you're in the middle of the fray, it's hard to see what God is doing. But I pray that you would cling to those promises. Plant those truths deep in your heart and fight to rest that no matter the outcome, God will accomplish all of his good purpose. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Joseph that we got to explore today. Lord, I pray that you would plant that deep in our hearts, that you will accomplish all your good purposes. And Lord, for those here who are struggling, who are hurting, who have others who have sinned against them, who have circumstances that are beyond their control. Lord, I pray that you would give them rest, that no matter the outcome, they may know that you are good and that you will accomplish your purposes. Amen.